The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. This morning, you can take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. And, and let, me, let me start by reading the very first verse of that chapter, verse 1, and I'm going to stop short. After these things, God tested Abraham. After these things, God tested Abraham. That word tested in the Hebrew has the idea of proving Abraham. It's the same word that's used more than 40 times in the Old Testament. And most of the time when that Hebrew word is used, it has the idea of proving something. It's like that metal worker who uh, shapes, by, as a blacksmith, shapes a piece of metal and, and, and pounds it and, and makes it. And Cliff, you know more about that than I do, or you're learning about that. But they shape that metal, and then they, uh, they dip that metal into a solution, either oil or water, and that brings all the molecules back together to make that sword or that knife or whatever's being made as a piece of metal that will be durable and withstand a test. And that's the same word and word picture we get here with Abraham as God tested Abraham. Now, Undoubtedly, within a congregation of this size, there are some of us who are going through a testing right now in our lives as God is testing us in a situation. There are many of us in this room have gone through very difficult sometimes and stressful testing of our faith already in the Christian life. And if you're not one of those two categories, can I clue you into something? you will be soon. You see, genuine faith is really not faith until it is tested. You see, we can make the declaration that we have a faith, that we have a trust in God, but until that faith is tested, it's really not proven. Now, most of us in this room would agree biblically that we are saved by our faith in Christ. Amen? We would agree that we live the Christian life in faith and in trusting God. And in the same way, when we get to Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is going to realize the declaration of his faith and recognize that while he made a declaration that he trusted God, it would be tested and it would be proven in what was about to take place in this chapter. You see, Abraham would learn that, that faith is genuine and real when it is tested in the crucible of life. Did anybody come to Jesus and someone tell them, everything is going to be great now that you've come to Jesus? Oh, it is great. But there's always a testing of that faith that takes place not only in the place and time when we trust Christ, but in the life of faith as well. Peter was writing to his readers in 1 Peter chapter 1, if you want to turn there with me, and I'll, I'll just read the verses if we don't have time to turn there. Peter writing to a church that was enduring great suffering and trial, and in that sense, a testing of their faith, Peter writes this, "'In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary,' 
you have been grieved by various trials, same word could be translated test, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here Peter speaks of their faith, which is more precious than gold. And just like gold is tested by the fire, so we as Christ's followers will be tested by the fire. You see, our faith, our trusting God, is confirmed in practice and in action. Just as Abraham was going to have to put his faith into action, so our faith is tested by our action as well. We're all familiar, we saw in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God, he trusted God. And Abraham's faith and trust in God was credited to him as righteousness. This statement is used three other times in the New Testament to underline the fact that that we are saved and we are kept by God because of our faith and our trust in Him. There's absolutely no work that you or I could ever do that would merit God's favor. We are saved by grace and grace alone. You see... The real proof is actually in the pudding. We can make a declaration that we trust God. We can say all day long that we trust God. We can post it on Instagram. We can post it on Facebook and whatever other social media platform there may be there. But real faith, genuine faith, will always come through in the trial of testing as God sometimes initiates and other times allows us to go through testing of our faith. James chapter 2, verse 17, James writes of this that yes, we would understand that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but James says this, so also faith by itself, if it is not, uh, if it does not have works, it is dead. James goes on to say, you, I, I'll show you my faith by, by my works. Not that we are saved by our works. None of us should ever have that idea. Oftentimes we do. And oftentimes we have the idea that we're kept by our works. But God makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are saved by grace through faith, not of our own works, so that no one may boast. But these works that we do, Paul tells us that those works were foreordained. They were instrumented by God so that we may walk in them and none of us have room or territory to brag or boast. Amen? You see, faith in the Bible is not an abstract idea. Nor is love in the Bible an abstract idea. Both faith and love, when we see them as examples or exhortations in Scripture, they are a concrete, tangible thing that they're not just an idea, but just as faith has to have action, love also has to have action as well. They're never in the abstract. The verse that we love to quote and we hang on to, and it is the gospel, for God so loved the world that he what? 
It wasn't an abstract idea that God just loved the world, but God responded in action for God so loved the world that he did what? He, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love was demonstrated to you and I when we were enemies of God. That God loved us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said this, if you love me, then you will do what? Some of you need to go back to children's ministry. (laughs) If you love me, then you will obey me. You see, there's that, that... application or there's that action based on what our profession is. And just like love, so is faith also in the Bible. You see, faith and love, if we just merely say them, they're they're empty words. They're a declaration until that is confirmed. When we take all of this and we think about it, This is a statement that we would have to live by. If one really believes, has genuine faith in God, they will step out believing Him no matter how preposterous, no matter how unreasonable, and no matter how countercultural that stepping out may be. We see that in this example of the life of Abraham and Isaac. You see, it was... This, this thing that God called Abraham to do, to take his one and only, his only son, and sacrifice him, can you imagine in the mind of Abraham how preposterous that might have seemed? How unreasonable that might have seemed? How countercultural that might have seemed to be as well? I mean, after all, Isaac was the promised seed of Abraham, whereby through the covenant that God had made with Abraham, God would bless every nation through his son Isaac. He was the son of promise, and God did some incredible things to make this come about. A couple of times we see where God even took the dumb decisions that Abraham made, just like you and I. Anybody here make dumb decisions occasionally in life? Okay, we're all... Don't point at me, honey. You, you, okay. Every time your finger is pointing out, there's three pointing back, okay? Just, all right, just, I will be in trouble after the service today. But we see God intervening in incredible ways to bring about this great promise, this covenant relationship that he had entered in with Abraham in order to bring about the promised son. And now we see in this instance, the son has been born, and it seemed preposterous. It seemed unreasonable to us, right? Some have the idea, how could a loving God ask Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son? I kind of flip that on the head and say, how could we ever expect that God would have sacrificed His one and only Son so that you and I might have an eternal relationship with God through Christ. 
You see, sometimes God will test our faith by calling us or commanding or leading us to do things that may seem completely preposterous, that seem unreasonable. And I put in this counterculture because the culture is going a different way than what Christ's followers are going, right? And especially our college age, our high school age, our kids, they are faced with issues that most of us in this room were never faced with when we were those ages. And they are faced with issues where they must make a declaration and the testing of their faith will counter what the culture is saying and even could at some point and someday land them ostracized or at the worst maybe incarcerated for countering the culture. They will face decisions that you and I during our working career never faced. Am I going to follow Christ or am I going to follow the culture and make a declaration for Christ? You see, most of us in this room never face the things that they are facing today. That's why it is very important, so strategically important, that we do everything that we can as a church body to build up, encourage, disciple these younger adults so that they might have boldness and courage to face a culture that's very counter to the one that God calls us to live as Christ followers. You see, in this chapter, really, I think there's an underlying question that that we are called to examine. Both Paul calls us to examine this question in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, and Peter in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, that we examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. Because we can make a declaration of faith. We can walk the altar aisle, and we can fill out a card, but the question is, when that faith is tested, is it genuine faith? Abraham was going to face that. What I want to do is walk through chapter 22, just talk through the passage, read it and talk through, make some comments, and then I want to give you four ways that I see in this text where God gives us opportunities to prove our faith genuine based on what our declaration is. Verse 1 of chapter 22, after these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, Abraham said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. Let me pause here. Moriah is that mount in Jerusalem where the temple was built, a foreshadowing of where God would take his only son, his one and only son, and he would sacrifice him there for the sins of all the world, for those who had placed their trust in him. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him to go. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go there and worship and come back to you. Abraham knew that God was calling him to sacrifice his own son. 
But here Abraham faith is, had faith as a writer in Hebrews chapter 11 would confirm that Abraham had faith and he believed that God, even though God would allow him to go through the full extent of this test, that God had the power to raise Isaac, his son, from the dead. And by faith, he says, we're going to go to the mountain. And notice what he says, we're going to worship God. You see, worship always involves a sacrifice. Worship always involves sacrifice. Oh, I know, we put worship in the context of what we do here on Sunday morning, and that's an expression of worship. But real worship, as we live our lives, according to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, as we live our lives as a living sacrifice to God, that is our reasonable act of service. And the Bible calls you and I that if we want to be true worshipers of God, it will always involve sacrifice to God. You see, it's not this Western American Christian idea that God is there for me. Yes, God is there for us, but our mindset is, God, what do you have for me? And God says, <laughs> you're missing the point. You're not God, I'm God. What do you have for me? You see, worship always involves sacrifice. Continuing on in this, and Abraham took the wood, the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they were both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father, and he said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? You know, I can kind of see the irony in this. Hey, Dad, I see you got the wood. I see you got the fire. But I thought we were going to the mountain to make a sacrifice to God. Where's the lamb? Can you imagine how it must have been for Abraham when his son asked him that question? It doesn't record it here. Perhaps Abraham turned to Isaac and said, Isaac, you're the sacrifice. And if he didn't at this moment, he would recognize it and realize it in just a few moments as they climbed up the mountain. And Abraham said this, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. You see, we see the first indication here, Scripture, of, of, of what we have a term in Scripture, in theology, as a substitutionary offering the foreshadowing that Christ would be our substitution offering, that we had a debt that we could not pay, and God saw and knew that we had a debt that we could not pay, and the death and the wrath of God that you and I deserved as a result of being sinners, enemies of God, God provided one in substitute for you and I. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. Underline this, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. A testing 
of Abraham's declaration of faith proven genuine by his willingness to sacrifice his son, his one and only son. You see, those tests come to each and every one of us in various ways. And the tests that come are not necessarily for God's benefit, because God is omniscient, right? God knew what the result of the test of Abraham was going to be, but God had to test Abraham, and the benefit of this test was not for God, but it was for Abraham himself. You see, it's not as necessary for God to test us to know whether or not we are genuine. God knows who's genuine. God sees the heart. He knows the heart more than you and I will ever know the heart. But the testing is so that we might confirm that we know that we are indeed in the faith. And it is a genuine test and a genuine faith. Abraham lifted up his eyes, verse 13, and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of a son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah-Jireh. How many of you are products of the 90s? Jehovah-Jireh, my provider. Remember the song? This is where it comes from. That God is our provider, but ultimately God is not only the provider of our breath, God's not only the provider of all of our substance, of all of the things that we need, but God is the provider of that one who would be sent to be slain and sacrifice his life so that we might have eternal life. You see, we have a foreshadowing again of God making a provision. Verse 15, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. This is a third time in, in, the, in the story of Abraham that God's going to confirm his covenant to Abraham. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That includes you and I fast forwarding in the covenant relationship. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. You see, Abraham was asked to, to give up his most prized possession. This was the son of the promise. This was the son that, that miraculously God had given to Abraham when he and Sarah were beyond the years of bearing children. And all that God, and all of the promise, the covenant that rested in this one son of Abraham, Abraham is called to give up the most precious thing that he owns. I couldn't help but ask myself the question, as I was preparing this last week, is there anything, J-Mo, that, that you've withheld from God? And I would ask all of us that same question. Is there anything that we say, God, I'll do anything but... God, I'll do anything but give up my resources... 
God, I'll do anything for you, but I'm not going to lay down my passions and my hobbies and the things I love. God, as long as it fits into my life story, my life category, I'll do anything. God, I'll do anything you ask, except I, I won't give up that person. Speaking mainly to our, our young who are looking for Mr. or Miss Right, right? God, I'll do anything, but I won't give up that person or that thing. Now, let me conclude very briefly with these four ways that God confirms our faith through tests that I see in this passage. Number one is this, that God calls for us, if we profess to be a Christ follower, We profess, but if we're going to live as a Christ follower, God calls us to unlimited availability before God. Unlimited availability before God. It's kind of like that story in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah is caught up in the throne room and he overhears God saying, who shall go for me? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. You see, I like to say I'll do anything as long as it fits on my calendar. I'll do anything as long as I have the resources and I don't have to give up any resources in order to do that. The two main resources that you and I have are our time and our money. You see, that's just for me, as I think about it, I'm pointing the finger at me this morning, right? You see, that's just cheap talk. God's not impressed by it when I say that and I have the hard attitude that's different. God wants unlimited availability from you and I if we're to be Christ followers. Is there any area in your life that you would say, God, I'm available as long as X, Y, or Z? Number two is this, unquestionable obedience. We see this in Abraham. Moses certainly doesn't record as the Holy Spirit inspires him that that Abraham questioned God in what God called him to do. And and there's a difference I want to point out of, of struggling. I'm sure Abraham went through some struggles with this, but he didn't question God. You see, I don't know if I've ever had an instance in my life where there's really been a test there that I haven't questioned God. God, why? God, why me? But ultimately, in Abraham's life, there was unquestionable obedience to God. Number three is this, unconditional trust in God Himself. How many of you are familiar with Hudson Taylor? This is a this is a write down for you. Hudson Taylor was the founder of China Inland Missionary Association. There, there's, a, there's a biography written on Hudson Taylor, and you want to write this title down, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secrets. 
You see, it was around the 19th century when there were very few missionaries that had gone to China, and many of them had gone there, and rather than continuing on with the mission endeavor that they had, they built their little enclave so that they might be separated from the people. And Hudson Taylor wanted desperately to go to China. He went before the mission boards of the day, and the mission boards rejected Hudson Taylor, saying that he didn't meet the qualifications, didn't have the education, didn't meet all of the criteria that they wanted that they would cause him or call him to be a missionary for that organization. You know what, I, you know what Hudson Taylor did? He said, you're not the ones calling me. God is calling me to China. Hudson leaves, and he goes to China spends his whole life, gives up his whole life in China, loses a wife and a daughter, I believe, if I remember the story right. And in all of those years, Hudson Taylor never saw the first convert to Christianity. But many missiologists look at what Hudson Taylor did in those pioneer years in China are the exact result of now millions, hundreds of millions of Chinese still under communist China rule are now Christ followers and believers in China. You see, Hudson Taylor had what I wish I had unconditional obedience to God, I like to line things up and say, well, as long as I have this, as long as I can have this means of income, as long as my lifestyle doesn't have to be altered, God says, I'm looking for those who are available and those who have unquestionable obedience what I'm calling them to do. Thirdly is unconditional trust in God Himself. You see, Abraham, how he knew it, we don't know. The writer in Hebrews hints that it was his faith in believing that, that God could raise Isaac from the dead, and in a sense, he gave up Isaac, right? Even though God stopped him from bringing the knife down on Isaac, in Abraham's heart, he had sacrificed Isaac to God. You see, God says this in His Word, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You know what's behind faith in the Christian life? It's trust. You know what's behind obedience in every area, every area of our life? It's trust. God calls us to fulfill the Great Commission, to share the gospel, to evangelize those who are not saved. The reason why I think we're most often disobedient in that is because we do not trust God. We have the idea that we're the ones doing the saving when actually God is the only one who can save. We don't trust God in, in feeling as though, well, I'm going to sever the friendship with them if I share Christ with them. Trust God in that. Maybe God will bring them to Christ, and not only will you have a friendship still, but you will have a relationship as a brother and brother in Christ rather than one being a son of disobedience and one being a son of God. Well, God, I... I, I Surely, God, you're, you're not calling me, you're not commanding me to give of my resources. You see, we can, 
we can sing the song, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give, (laughs) but I'm only going to give a pittance in the plate, and that's every now and then. You see, behind that disobedience is a lack of trust in God. Is it challenging? Yes, it is. But every time we do this or that or those things that we know that God has called us to, it reenacts our faith and it reconfirms our faith in Him that we know that He is God and He is who He says He is. Three circumstances I want to share with you that that sometimes I have seen in my life and in others as I've counseled through them and, and I've lived it in my own life where test comes that, that, that where they might be come, coming from. Number one is this, that sometimes God might bring a test through a direct direction to us. Where God says in our heart, confirms it through His Word, This is what I want you to do. Pretty direct. It's that little knower where the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. As we're in devotion, walking with Him in relationship where God puts this in our heart and says, this is what I want you to do. It's a test. We trust God to do it. Number two, a change of life circumstances. Heard me say this many times, life can change on a dime. And God calls us to trust. Number three, in this area of testing, sometimes is just providential leading. Where it may even be that something happens to us through someone else that that just kind of catches us out of left field. Example would be Joseph and his brothers. But when we look through that story of all the injustice that had been done to Joseph by his brothers, we see God's hand all the way through it, and Joseph is able to say in 50 verse 20 of Genesis, what men intended, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. You see, trust God that no matter what comes along in our life, no matter what test might be there, that God allows and sometimes orchestrates that God is God. Number four is this, unrestricted willingness to withhold nothing from God. I can make the declaration that that's easy, but it's not. See, Abraham was willing to let go of his most precious possession. As I thought about these points and this giving up of his son that Abraham to do, I, I came to this conclusion. That the test of true faith is not what we are willing to give to God, but the test of true faith is what we are not willing to give up for God. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.